You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Poetry and Conversation. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a few, a couple events that we have coming up that you might also want to join us for. Um, on Sunday, December 4th, there's a Cave Canem reading at the UB Wright Theater, and it's featuring Cornelius Eady and Marilyn Nelson which should be amazing, so please join us for that. And then Wednesday, December 7th, we're doing a special celebration of Emily Dickinson's birthday. Um, so please bring your favorite Emily Dickinson poem and um, join us that evening right here as well. And um, we have a lot of great poetry events coming up in 2017, including a poetry contest. Um, and to be informed about all our poetry events, you can put your email address on the list outside this room and we'll keep you in the loop. Um, so um, very excited to have Meg Eaton and Barrett Warner here to read tonight. Um, they're each going to read for maybe 15 or so minutes, and then we're going to have some Q&A. And then they'll read some closing poems, um, and there will be a chance to buy their books and chat at the end. Um, And so I'm going to begin by introducing Meg. Meg Eden's work has been published in various magazines, including Rattle, Drunken Boat, Poet Lore, and Gargoyle. She teaches at the University of Maryland. She has four poetry chapbooks, and her novel, Post High School Reality Quest, is forthcoming from California Cold Blood. You can check out her work at megedenbooks.com. Amid the tumult of last week, one of my favorite novel quotes kept coming back to me, a quote from Ian Forster's Howard's End. The quote is, only connect. And I'm so glad we have Meg Eden here tonight because she is a poet of brilliant connections. She connects what is dreamy and playful in us with what is adult and cynical, our fairy tales with our sorrows. She connects foreign countries such as China and Japan with America through her very moving hunger to look through other people's eyes. She connects our animal natures with our angel sides. She connects powerful zingers of endings with lots of questions and the sensation of poetry as an open door. And her beautifully natural language connects her to us as readers as if we were catching up with a friend. In real life, when we try to connect opposites, one often beats out the other. But in Meg's poems, as in the very best poems, we hear a kind of miracle, two opposites at once, coexisting, like the two songs we hear the birds sing at the end of the poem, rendering, one song dark, one bright. When injured, do they cry to the others, I am afraid or beware of fathers and their bitterness? Or do they just sing, it is spring again, and we are still alive. Please help me to welcome Meg Eden. Thank you so much for that kind um, intro, and thank you so much for having me here in such a beautiful space, um, literally in space. So how many of you are writers? 
Okay, we've got quite a few. Um, how many of you are sending out your work to magazines? And how many, reject how many of you have gotten rejection letters? Okay, so you can kind of relate to this poem maybe. Um, I have been getting a lot of rejection letters because I send out my work a lot, so therefore I get multitudes of those. Um, and kind of to fight off the despair of that, I decided to write a rejection letter for all those forgotten Disney princesses um, from Disney. So RE, Disney marketing options for the forgotten Disney princesses. Dear Alonwi, Megara, Kida, Giselle, Vanellope, Esmeralda, Melody, Jane, and others. Thank you for your interest in being included in the Disney Princess franchise lineup. We're glad to hear you're a fan of the work we do. Unfortunately, after carefully examining your box office sales, marketability, and overall popularity, I'm sorry to say that you do not meet our needs at this time. Do not be discouraged. Most princesses receive many rejection letters before finding their right fit. Look at Mulan, who was declared ineligible for the army for being a woman, or Ariel, who had to become human before she could get married to her prince. Disney heroines are known for their brave spirit, so please don't give up. May we recommend DreamWorks, Don Bluth, Warner Brothers, Fox Studios. They might be a better fit for your aesthetic. We wish you well on your princess journey and the best of luck in finding your home elsewhere. Sincerely, the board. Purity Conference. One, we are ushered like cows into the sanctuary. Noelle and I never talk about boys, let alone sex. Our mothers brought us here because it's better to learn young and not the hard way. We're in seventh grade and talk about Lord of the Rings. Men are elves and dwarves and hobbits, strange, distant, only in our minds. The speaker tells us you are all treasured like princesses. A squad of volunteers kneel at our seats and massage our feet, the way that whore washed Jesus' feet. Instead of tears, they use generic brand lotion, scented like craft store roses. I want to tell the girl in front of me that I don't like people touching my feet, that I don't like the texture of lotions. But she's working so hard, so sincerely, to remove the dirt between my toes. Two. Before we can leave, we are lined up to get our souvenir. A plastic pearl made in China, a reminder of your worth in Christ. In my palm, the gloss begins to peel. Three, the speaker holds up two cups, one paper, one china. She asks, which would you rather be? She explains, paper cups are used and thrown away, while teacups are washed and treasured. What she doesn't say, teacups sit on the shelf, displayed but never used. Paper cups are crumpled, but can be uncrumpled and used again. Drop a paper cup and it stays whole. A teacup is shattered. Inside my head, I tell her, let me be paper.
So I grew up in rural Maryland um, in my father's childhood home, a 50s rancher that was built by somebody who should not have had any right to build a house. So most of my life was my father rebuilding our house. Um, and so this poem is a little bit about that. It's called Stir Fry Bok Choy, sophomore year of high school. Shay goes through the kitchen looking for a walk. When she finds one, I watch her wash the dog hair from the inner rim. Her house is dark and there is dog hair stuck to the insides of condiment lids. There is dog hair on the dishes that are used less often. And in the bathroom, there is dog hair on top of toilet and behind the sink. Every time I touch something, I want to wash my hands. Shay pulls a ginger root from a Ziploc bag. Honey white with wounds, her slice marks leave. Rough brown body, a real ginger root. When my mother cooks, she uses store-bought sauce and boxed mac and cheese. If we ever make stir-fry at my house, my mother would have had all the ingredients ready and lined up on the counter, pre-washed veggies, noodles, and meats pre-packaged in bright-colored bags. Only the best for our guests. If we still had a dog, my mother would keep her outside. If there was any fur inside, she would get on her knees with a roll of packaging tape, pressing and peeling until the baseboards were spotless. If this was my mother's kitchen, I wouldn't be having friends over until things were back in order, until the window was put in, the fireplace replaced until all our toilets worked and my father finished the door so we wouldn't have just a tarp over the empty frame, until he cleaned up all the nails and dust in the living room, until this place looks civilized, my mother says. And it will be soon. I've believed my mother for 15 years. My mother, afraid of what she can't make perfect, has me distract guests while she gets her makeup ready. What I'm saying is, Shay, I like your gross house. When I tell you I've never cooked before, you look at me with pity. I look at your hairy house with pity, but I shouldn't because you are braver than me or my mother. You tell me your father lost his job last week, but you continue to stir, saying he'll find another one soon. There is no such thing as normal, as safe for any of us. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe all of us are afraid. This poem is called When the Kitchen Sink Leaked, which happened quite a bit at our house. When the kitchen sink leaked, the first thing my mother thought to save were the dolls. Fairy tale themed, all in matching coffin boxes. My mother unwrapped each one from gold script Franklin mint tissue paper, pulled out their dripping certificates. The boxes were wet and collapsed at the touch, but the dolls inside were dry. What did my mother see in them? 
laid out on the hearth. They looked like dead girls, their porcelain skin hard and white, cheeks painted for a viewing. Pollyanna with the prism in her hand, Alice, a stuffed rabbit with red stains for eyes. Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm in her pink dress and parasol. The little goose girl in green. My mother grew up with and learned from these girls. I grew up with Princess Jasmine, Mulan, Pocahontas. My mother believed in old world long suffering and optimism. I believed I could jump off a waterfall, go to war, save a country. She must have told me all their stories once. It scares me that I don't remember. She's saving them for me, she says, when I move out and have my own daughters. Looking at the dolls, I see our resemblance, same pale whiteness, hair styled by someone else, slowly unraveling to bedhead, eyes eternally open. I, too, will die someday. So, possibly because of recent events and everything else, I have kind of been in a, the way I've coped has kind of been wanting to go back to the 90s. Um, so I've been on a 90s nostalgia trip, um, particularly for things that, like Pokemon Pop-Tarts, is something that I have been missing for some reason. So this po poem is about Pokemon Pop-Tarts. Aunt Sue had all the food my mother never buy me. SpaghettiOs, toaster strudels, even Pokemon Pop-Tarts with sprinkles shaped like Pikachu, Charmander, Polyrath, Chansey. There was a figure inside the box, and my cousin let me have it, the nicest thing he ever did for me. It was my favorite Charmander. I still have it sitting on my bedroom shelf. I look at it sometimes and wonder, what the world would be like if we still had Pokemon Pop-Tarts. On eBay, someone sells boxes filled with 16-year-old Pop-Tarts, still wrapped. I almost buy one. There's something incredible about that idea of opening that wrapper, a piece of 1999 hard and stale inside, yet looking so much enough the same as if biting into that Pop-Tart, I might go back to a pre-millennium, pre-social media, pre-9-11 life. That I might never have to change or be afraid. But I don't buy the Pop-Tarts. I stay up late at night, googling pictures of the box art, falling asleep with my monitor up. This is the closest I can get to ever being a girl again. Thank you again so much for having me here. I've got two more poems. This poem is called Her Arms Are Calendars. Despite warning labels reading, do not use on skin, Kelly used her arms like paper reams, writing jelly roll reminders. 
Math problem set due Tuesday. Call Anna. I told her the ink was toxic, but she shrugged, drawing a heart on the gap between her ring and pinky fingers. The marks were milky pink, luminescent even. I think about the radium girls who painted their teeth glow in the dark for late night pranks, who pointed their paintbrush tips with their lips the way their managers showed them, who were told the only effect from radium was some color in the cheeks. In the dark, the radium girls glowed like the clocks they made. Even the dust on their corsets was illuminated. One girl got her tooth pulled, but the whole jaw came with it. Another broke her leg, tripping on the dance floor. I don't know what it's like to feel my jaw collapse like an eroded cliff, teeth falling out, honeycombed bone. My mother, on my getting married, gives me three pump bottles of Johnson & Johnson baby soap. If it's made for babies, it's got to be safe, she says. I don't tell her about the article that just came out, the moms asking why there's formaldehyde in that soap. I can't know what gave my mother her fibromyalgia. I wash my hands in her soap. It's been three years, and I still haven't gone through all the bottles. In the Burger King line, Julie ate Orlando Bloom, and Kara cried until we got our onion rings. The picture was cheap, an inkjet print blurred from too much folding. Kara had kept it in her wallet since the first Lord of the Rings movie, and like every other girl in seventh grade, swore she'd marry him one day. But Julie wouldn't buy that crap. She swallowed the paper whole. We laughed, but Julie was serious. No more bullshit. We were almost adults, and soon we'd carry high school, college, working lives. No more room for Middle Earth crushes. I didn't want to think about this. I ordered a kid's meal and assembled a king's cardboard crown on my head. Thank you so much. Wow, thank you, Meg. So as a reminder, um, both poets have multiple books here, and they're in the hallway. So please, thank you for coming and supporting the poets. But if you can, definitely think about getting one of their books. Uh, So I'm Tracy Diamond from Programs and Publications, and I am going to introduce Barrett Warner. I call Barrett Warner a friend, not just someone I know. Barrett is the author of Why Is It So Hard to Kill You and My Friend Ken Harvey. He's a 2016 recipient of an Individual Artist Award from the Maryland Arts Council and a winner of numerous prizes. A horseman as well, he lives on a farm in Maryland where he also edits Free State Review and serves as acquisitions editor for Galileo Books. Don Cher recently said in The Atlantic that poets see a form of truth before it happens. His exact words were, 
They're moving around and paying attention at every moment. This is how I feel when I read or hear a poem by Barrett. His poems explore moments merging the tense relationship of action and memory. Careful and unflinching, Barrett's work acknowledges labor in work and life. Living is hard. I mean, why is it so hard to kill you? But it's tender to see tenacity. Warner asked the angelfish, come on, little triangle. Is your song here not complete? Still, it's hard to be merciful when time is not. The tension between this tenderness and mutilation are the glue of many of his poems. I could eat someone else's leg while he ate mine if, I, if it meant escape. I'm also excited for Barrett's performance because he puts on something memorable every time. It's not just his preacher-like voice, uh, but his choices of what he does. Like, for example, a recent performance, uh, there was, in a recent performance, there was a miming of riding a horse. <laughs> uh, so it's my honor to introduce to you Barrett Warner. So my uh, parents, uh, when they eloped, they eloped in, and went, they had a honeymoon in Gettysburg and went back there for me to be born. I was born in Westminster, but then we went back to um, uh, Southwest Washington where both, both of their families had lived for many years. They called it Washington. Um, so this is a poem from that neighborhood. It's called Oxen Run. And here, a fish that can't be alive in the dirty martini stream that doesn't exist, yet it does, bending at the humorous and ulna of Mississippi and southern Aves in southeast Washington, city of elbows. Legless swimmer, let me imagine you fell from storm clouds hissing in the sky, traveled from the parking lot via rain sewer in a paper cup or a Guinness can barge, not 15 downhill blocks from St. E's, where Pound sang his cantos to sleep. Chinooks from Bowling Air Force Base above and gray destroyers in the Navy Yard and below a geology layered by a hand skilled in the art of corruption so that dinosaur gravel from 60 million years ago beds with alluvial clay from an era of live birth, this rarest of rocky marriages, the only one that produces magnolia bogs. No wonder its popularity among middle schoolers like my mother in the 50s preparing to be greasers or to protest policing exercises in South Vietnam, one race pursuing happiness, but on another corner, the pursuit of meaning and a hot herring sandwich at Aunt Lucy's is what matters. Even today, as four deer gossip in the fens, two beautiful brown boys climb the bank, a little hip showing above their denim as if they'd just been for a swim. All the latest talk in paradise concerning butterflies. <clears throat> the obvious is not always explicable. 
This we know. Butterflies need milkweed, their only food, and its poison, their only defense. The milkweed's blessing, it's a perennial, and only toxic to cattle who've nothing else to eat. Ranchers, please, instead of spraying, why not give your Santa Gertrudis more hay? What I'm saying, drop a seed in the wind, have lifetimes of butterfly kisses. Believe me, I know how dull the urge to make mystery of the everyday. Most people love butterflies, but never know what to say to a butterfly. They just shrug, like a butterfly sits on the bench beside them, and they are all looking away and clutching their elbows close to their bodies. It is so hard to kiss when there are five holes in your lungs, as if old wounds could be constellations. That's the funny thing about a Milky Way, how the galaxy is beating under the plexus. Try, would you split this milkweed with me? It's just too much poison for one person. That was a butterfly icebreaker. Now you know what to say, what to do. And then... um, I'll read another one before a few from the book. Uh, uh, I don't know how much to say here. Um, this is just called The Bat. A machete is an extension of your arm, not your grip. In this, cutting resembles tennis. Forehand with a backspin slice into the messy tops of ragweed that clutter the post. I'm good at it, the way some are natural at surfing or smiling in the face of incomprehension. 15 love, 30 love. I behead my way around the field we hayed last month, noticed but not reacted to by grazing cousins, swinging and chopping. There isn't any measure to consider how anyone can be hurt. On the west slope, I buried dead horses. Tommy Starfish, charred angel, nothing easy, like a cemetery of punk bandmates. Even planted deep, a small wave of earth betrays restless slumber along an inelegant stack of telephone poles. Like John Lucas and Ash, I learned to play on clay, rolling out the dew each morning. I was known for a devastating second serve after the shock of an unpredictable first one. A few friendly bounces, a toss in the air, and it might sail to the river or smack an opponent. Once, finding me with a machete, my love asked, why are so many telephone poles in the graveyard? And I didn't have any answer except a quiet assent at the semi-horrifying nature of mixed doubles. She'd lately been tending a juvenile bat rescued from the bank barn. Its ear was bent. I knew she wanted me to ask after it so she could tell me its ear was better, although he still wasn't moving around much. You worried, I asked. I'm worried, she said. Well, um, this poem is, um, was written by a, um, 
young woman, written for a young woman. Uh, 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 one of the kids that has the cancer, leukemia. And uh, so I wrote this for her. It's called The Rainbow Pig. I once ate copper salt bleeding through jasper. Now my eyes are green. I chewed cyanide into dust and spit. So blue, so blue, my teeth. My belly turns yellow to be the sun shining on its own shadow. In the heat and crickets of August, I was so hungry for autumn, I gorged on maple leaves. My coat turned orange, my points ochre, my mane like a kissable lip. So red, so red, I am the rainbow pig. While others snort and root and grunt, I am silent until the day star burns off the whiskey rain. Find me, find me at the end of the iris. I'm dreaming, dreaming of you. Um, so those are some new poems, and uh, I'll just read a few from the book. Um, this is called Motion Detector. Staring at the motion detector, I try not to blink. We play this game 20 times a night, two bucks a match. The motion detector is rich. It has never lost, and winning throws a harsh light that blinds my skull. The upside of so much failure. I can stare a long time without thinking or making plans or remembering. But I wish we played for love or that losing would be winning, and my fear of touching you dissolved when I closed my eyes. Luck has a way of drooling like water from stone. One night, I bet a whole 50, like plugging another amp into me. Of course, I blinked. Good night, my love, I said into the white blinding star. Um, this is called The Brig. I may come and go as I please, if I wave my hand nicely, Tuesdays and Fridays, we get fish, eyes baked in the heads. Lifers say, you can't have a jail unless there is something worth caging. This is how I know I matter. Sundays, we have a social. If it isn't raining, I wear a rat catcher blazer. A few friends come over. Bruce shows me his jail. Lines hypothesized on clay in the shape of a cage. Visiting my plain-spoken hutch, he wonders what I could have done to earn a second pillow. Um, I'm very, very close with my cousin, uh, my cousin Jennifer Soto. Uh, and she's a, uh, she's a flamenco dancer. Uh... And this is called Hira Mortal, which is a movement in flamenco, which means turning on death. Someone looking exactly like me just turned the corner 
at West Broadway and Grand. He was smiling as if he'd just had lunch with a flamenco dancer who'd burst into flames. He took long strides. No doubt she was tall, taller than him, with hand-driven nails in her heels. And he was walking big, as if pacing the memory of her hero mortale, stinging herself with auto-percussion. I followed him into a bar known for black wines and cava and ordered a cortadito, surprised that I could speak Castellano like a matador on Benzedrin, all ego and hypervals. Secretly, I'd always wanted to stroke a bull's hump. So velvet, so neatly shapeless, yet meaningful. Then I lost him. We'd been alone. Now dozens of crooked suede elbows at the bar made pistol fingers and reduced their stories down to exchange of vague but clever impressions, like shimmering oil stains. At the hotel, I passed a large bowl of apples in the lobby and spidery clerks who looked like they only ate on Wednesday. How was your walk? My cousin asked from the bed. I gave her an apple. She bit a star into it, then another. And uh, I kind of want to read um, this poem about uh, one of my neighbors. Uh, he um, actually, my first. Uh, one of the first stories I published in 1984 was called Walter Sonnets. It was in uh, Berkeley Fiction Review. And uh, this poem I just wrote the other day has the same character, so I'm still writing about Walter. This is called Dinner Party. I made the pig thing, but with my horse instead. Dug a hole, cooked it for two days, added carrots and Kennebec potatoes so no one would recognize him. Walter kept looking at my gun. I was like, hey, Walter, eat something. And Ned was looking at Walter, but still talking to other people. One false move is what everyone was thinking. And Lydia, do you remember her drawers drying on the line, how it scared the horses? She straight up wanted the recipe. I said, first you need a mare that wants a stallion, then you need a stallion, raise the baby, and butcher it before it goes to college. Dave and Deb laughed like seals. It's been five years, but I still think Walter killed his wife. And uh, and then I'll end with this poem that was in uh, Infinity uh, Inc. Um... Ed, Ed Babis was a, uh, I mean, he was a good friend. I guess you could say he's a good friend. He's had his problems. We were pretty close. Crossing the Susquehanna with Ed Babis. Try seeing Eddie's face. You look right through it. No crooked nose. No Fourth of July in his eyes. Look at his face, and you see the person standing behind him. He doesn't have a face either, and the one behind that, and the next. Stubs in hand, Eddie skips to the tracks. Cigarette where his lower lip should be. Anybody got a lung? Eddie's Pueblo, the headwaters of the Ganges. Baltimore, plus.
places where I dreamed in all the dreams and the wild nights of winds knocking me sideways. Hey, Eddie, someone says, three days dead and you're still turning heads. Eddie spits out 22 teeth, arranges them on a, in a smile on her lap. Her bandaged head sports rubies of blood. Aurora spark me with big flashes I try to grab in my hand. You want to know what's in the baggie? It's my pancreas. Eddie's missing mouth leans towards my missing ear. I feel a soft blowing shudder. Eddie doves around my blue larkspur. Tiny smears of vomit on his rolled cuff. Sick from the exquisite motion. I grasp his arm to steal some of the electric charcoal right out of his sketch. There isn't any difference between thinking and shouting. Makes you want to stop having thoughts so the screaming will stop. The towering violet polonia trees are out this time of year. It's the softest hardwood. Carve it, turn it, twirl it into ragas. Ahead, my sweet lost Eddie, crossing the big ghost of the east. Thank you, Barrett. Um, and Meg, if you want to come down, too. So we're going to have a joint Q&A. Um, and then each poet will close with a poem or two. And before the Q&A, I just wanted to remind everyone that if you would like, uh, you can sign up for our mailing list to hear more about poetry programming at the Pratt. And also, if you have time to fill out an evaluation, that would be great, too, because it helps us with future programming. Um, so for the q and I'll bring the microphone to you because this is being podcasted, so we want to hear your questions. So who would like to ask the first question? So my question is, what inspired you to write poetry? And you know, what were your thoughts about it when you first started? Well, I can say for me it was the cool thing to do in like seventh grade that all my friends were doing it and posting them on this website. So really conformity is kind of what started it for me. Um, but I think after that I found it as a way to kind of process my thoughts and cope with new experiences and kind of try to understand myself better. So every time I have a feeling that I don't quite understand or experience something that I feel like is unresolved in some sort of way, I think I turn to poetry. In my case, I mean, I, I was one of those kids that um, didn't properly learn how, how to write and uh, tended to draw my letters, uh, taking me a long, long time. And um, for me, I think of poetry as a way of drawing sentences, mm. um, similar to how when I was just a toddler, I was drawing letters. Other questions? I have a couple of questions. I noticed um, in the art of literature itself that you both are talented, and I'm just trying to um, to get a more idea of where you all are taking the directive of your poetry. Um, there is a consistent tone in the voices of each piece of literature that you, both of you all have, have read. And I know you said you, you've um, received several um, 
several um, magazines that actually allowed and being able to go further. So it was. It, it looks as if, if there's some, um, you know, consistency in the in the hobbying study of the poetry literature, or it is, you know, um, a very educated approach. Um, yours is very satiric satirical, and I know your project is on um, framing an action and elaborating on it. Um, but the power of the pen, when we go to the high level ability of what a poet has of what a poet can do. Is there such a goal for you all? And is there, um, and how does these pieces that we read work in regards to taking you there? Or how could we be of assistance of taking you in that direction, um, being able to mold? Mm. That's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, I think for me, I feel like most of my life poetry has been kind of this inaccessible thing that's like, often when I tell people I write poetry, people are like, oh, well, I'm not smart enough to do that, which I think is kind of bullshit. Poetry is something for everybody. It's a way we think and process our world. So my goal with writing poems is to make that accessible and show people what I love about poems and how I use it as a medium for myself. I teach at a local community college, and I love teaching poetry to these students and showing them it doesn't have to rhyme, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare, that poetry is a voice and a venue for everybody. Um, so I think that that's what I love doing so the way that you guys can be um, helping with that is sharing poetry with your communities sharing poetry if you've got kids sharing it with them people in your life and showing them that poetry can be a beautiful thing um, for them to appreciate and also to be able to use um, I love seeing when I have a student who never wrote poetry and realizing I like this Wait, why are we going to the fiction unit? I want to keep doing the poetry um, and I love that and I love seeing that they've they can found a venue for the things that they want to say Oh, um, I think, did you want to answer that question too? Yeah, I'm not really sure how to answer it. I, I mean, I, I don't teach, um, and, and I just think of myself as walking all over the city and the country with a big L on my back for learner. Mm. Because that's just, that's for me, that's, that's all I'm doing. And, and, and writing a poem, it gives me a, I mean, for me, a poem is a conversation. Mm. And uh, uh, my mind makes a, a lot of jumps. Uh, and it sort of skips around a lot. It's, I'm a, I'm a, it's very uh, associative. And so I kind of, feeling like I lack an editing process within me to have a conversation with anybody. I mean, it's, it's a way to sort of like have that. And, and, when, so when, and then I compose, almost all of my poems I compose um, orally, out loud, mm. and, and then go back and sort of figure out what I meant to do. And um, you know, sort of, uh, just sort of, you know, make sure the buttons are buttoned right. You're both from Maryland, is that correct? Yes. Have you ever met the poet laureate Stanley Plumley? I could tell you all about Stanley Plumley. <laughs> Please tell me what you your impression of him. I've heard him read. Mm. I've also done a presentation of his work at the Baltimore Hostel. Mm. I find it. I I mean, I have my own ideas about him. I happen to think he's fine, but I wish there was a greater collective, not only in Baltimore. I'm the archivist with mm. the Baltimore City Historical Society, and I collect the work of current Baltimore City poets. 
And I find that there is such isolation mm. with poets. Nobody wants to work together. Mm. And so few people even know who Stanley Plumley is. Mm. And I was wondering if you could tell me your, if you've ever met him, what you know about him, uh, his relationship with your schools. Okay, thank you. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because I was an undergrad and a graduate student at the University of Maryland. So Stan Plumley is kind of like a father figure to me. Um, I worked with him first in an undergraduate course, and he really encouraged me in my poetry. In fact, he, um, at some point he was like, when the heck are you going to join this program um, when I was an undergraduate there? Um, he is very, very blunt with feedback, and that was often very, very hard to take. But um, I would not be where I am right now if it wasn't for him. Um, I think it's really interesting of what you say about the isolation. I think people feel that in a lot of communities. I don't think that's just a Maryland thing. Um, and it's such a bummer because there are so many poets. I think when I started um, looking for programs in Maryland and D.C., I was like, there are so many poets. I felt like Elijah when he was in the cave hiding from Jezebel and he felt like he was the only believer left and then suddenly he found all these people hiding in caves. It's like all us poets are hiding in caves. Um, so... I think it is interesting that a lot of people don't know Stanley. I think people that associate with the University of Maryland and that area kind of get to know him. Um, but I wish there were more, and I think that there is hope. I think I'm seeing a lot more programs rising up that are trying to unite people that are poets in local areas. Um, and if any of you are interested in that sort of thing, please talk to me because that is one of my goals is to be bringing collectives and communities of poets together, so I'd be happy to point toward resources that are doing that. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does, because okay. I have been involved with the Baltimore Poetry Committee for a very long time. Mm. And I look at the people here, and I don't recognize anyone. Mm. Everyone knows Sid, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my experiences with, with Stanley, uh, I, I read his book, um, you know, about the dinner party with Keats. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, with Keats, yeah. I, I thought that that was uh, just a fantastic, it was just, it was a book, one of those books that just turned me around. It was a piece of historical literary criticism. No, 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 it was, uh, it was about a dinner party hosted by uh, an artist for Keats and Wordsworth and um, the... Um, the essayist uh, uh, Charles Lamb, and um, I th you know, happy to get a whole book out of a dinner party. But I mean, it was just it was a page turner mm -hmm. for me. So that was my first experience with Stanley, and then uh, I, be I, I met him, and uh, I met him at a, at a reading at uh, in Frederick, where both he and I had gone to hear the the, the poet, and I'm, then I met him at another reading in Southern Maryland, and I was just amazed. Here I am meeting this guy. He's going all over the state mm -hmm. to hear these interesting people that are coming through and making just one little stop. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he seems to be quite the literary citizen. Mm. Um, um, oh, I, uh, okay. I, 
I'm sorry, I have another question. Um, my name, I'm, I'm from the southern. I'm from the south, and I'm revamping my career. And I noticed that this, this, um, there is a poet society, and also there is some consistency I see in, in, in your pieces of work. Um, I noticed that there is um, somewhat like a depressive darkness that mm. somewhat consistently sit within the art piece mm. and it does it does in some pieces get drastic and very vivid now um, as I have traveled um, in you know preparing to revamp my my career I came from banking and financing and I'm not sure which directive which directive I'm going into I noticed that as I move north um, it will be different regions so to say that feel um, a survival mechanism mm -hmm. in order to dress their people, dress their mm -hmm. students in similar but not the same demeanors in order to prepare them for what they feel is a world, world to come. But um, um, just it's just coming from another place where um, it's a lot of tourism. You know, in Florida, it's a lot of tourism. It's a lot of other people passing by. It's so many demeanors that we can um, dress ourselves in. It's so many ways, I mean, different directions. So it's not one particular mechanism or one particular um, darkness or light that seems to hover over, the, over individuals. Um, with look... Uh, yeah, so with the with those those things in mind and looking at the piece of the work, is this uh, typical? Is this typical in the because it's isolation and then there's somewhat like a depressive darkness that sits in every piece of work. Is this really healthy for this community? I mean, it's definitely intellectual work. It's definitely very sound, straightforward, a lot, um, um, very um, informative. It's very informative, but this disposition, this this sheet of paper, so to say, this beginning aura, is it healthy? And then also, this is what's um, given off, or is it, or it, or is it desire? Is what was the last word you said? Is it um, like? Um, do you know how? Um, like if we study poetry is also um, cause, um, utilized in the music realm. So, you know, rap music. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. if you hear rap music, you get a headache. It's too fast. It's aggravating. And then R&B versus classical. You see such different moods yeah. that it puts. Okay, and when I'm looking at the work, it's some, a, a darkness. It's a little darkness that's it, that's consistent mm -hmm. and within all the work. Is this elected or this is the poetry norm? Mm -hmm. You know, like oh, an yeah. APA format. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many different questions, but I don't know if whether or not we know. If, <laughs> I, I think, I, sorry, I just like wasn't sure what you said, but that makes sense, yeah. Um, I think that it's, in all creative writing, there's a tendency towards finding a problem. Um, I encourage my fiction students particularly to think about this, because if there's no problem, the story doesn't move. Um, if everything's happy, there's no story to tell. And I think likewise as a poet, it's easier to hone in on the problematic moments to have something to spark a poem. Um, my hope is that 
we start with a problem and we move towards resolution and we move towards healing and that in the poems we're dealing with problems and if you look at them in the larger scope as a collective that there is healing that's coming through that um, and I hope that that's coming through um, and maybe that doesn't always come through um, but I think a lot of poets use it also to go through to um, cope and process negative experiences too a lot of poets come from backgrounds where there is some hurt that has been in their life potentially or something yeah Yeah. And I think I grew up in a culture of kind of smile and bear it and do not share kind of what you're going through. And I think I found poetry very healing in that I have a place to express myself and to not hide those things away um, and to find a voice and to find other people who relate to that and to kind of cope and process things that are hard for me to understand. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? Did you want to answer? Hmm? Did you want to respond? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm really not sure. Um, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I mean, I kind of grew up on the Old Testament a little bit, and I, I come from a tradition of isolation, illumination, conviction, and um, with that, and uh, at least that's the tradition I come from. I don't really observe it too much anymore. But it's more like now. It's more like isolation, illumination, punchline, or you know what can, you know what can I how can I vary that a little bit? Um, so I I I don't know. I think going back to what you were getting at with music, I think you, if I were a musician, you would say that I was a mood. I created mood music, and um, rather than music that was like full of a sense of destination um, and charisma. So thank you all for being here. We're going to have one more question. I just wanted to ask you very quickly, who are some of your, who are some of your favorite poets? Oh, this is always hard. Um, some people I'm really excited about right now are Denez Smith and Ocean Vuong. Um, those are the two that always come to mind. I've always loved Patricia Smith and Naomi Shihab Nye as well. Those are kind of some of my heroes. And when I first heard them, I was like, so cool. Um, but I'm loving seeing what younger poets are doing right now, and I'm kind of, every time I see something that Ocean Vuong or one of them does, I'm kind of like, have a slight life crisis of like, I'm almost their age. I don't have a book from Copper Canyon. What am I doing with my life? But I love them. I love them so much. Um, so check them out. Check out all the young poets of what they're doing. It's exciting. Oh, Kave, what is his name? Kave Akbar. I'm probably totally butchering that. And Kave. Kave. 
Yeah, and uh, Fatima Ashkar, is that how you say yeah, Fatima. Oh, Fatima, Fatima yes. Instead of me, I'm butchering names. But yeah. I guess uh, um, um, a younger poet uh, I'm interested in these days is Anders Carson Wee. Uh, and um, uh, a, a poet from our vintage would be uh, Major Jackson. His new book is Roll Deep. And, um, but I'm, I'm also uh, greatly enjoying a, a book of fiction uh, by a, a woman named Sarah Lippman. And, and I find that even like as a poet, um, I, I feel like I just get as much from reading fiction as reading poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, find, I find that I, I'm just as stirred by, by, by what I'm reading. So thank you again to the poets. Let's give them one more round of applause. And thank you all for sharing your night with us. We have books for sale. We have the email list to sign up. And we have upcoming flyers. So thank you again. Enjoy your night. Oh, I'm so sorry. Closing poems. I forgot. Would you, like that? Would you like to hear one more poem from each poet now that you've heard their perspective? Yes? Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to do um, a poem that's kind of become my token poem. Um, I don't know what that says about me. It is called Being Mistaken as Your Father's Wife at the Annual Woodworking Show. The ticket my father hands me reads, $2 off admission for spouse. The woman at the counter asks, is this your wife? My life needs no police investigations. I am not a mail order bride, not a Mormon daughter wife. My father's just thrifty and forgets my birthday. I'm 17 and have never been kissed. But the woman doesn't ask for my testimony. She stamps our hands and lets us enter the woodworking show. We're in the middle of a fairground, and I realize people don't ask questions here. The only other women at the show are older than me, married to men with shirts that read, He who dies with the most tools wins. These men won't look at me or talk to me. They ask my father what he likes to make. But he pats my back and says, my daughter is the real craftsman here. They always look surprised when I sit at the scroll saw and cut out plywood hearts, small and easy to break. I make them in one cut to display how quickly I can turn, how thin and smooth the outside edge is. It is then that I am made known. Thank you very much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.